This is Duke University. Well, thank you, everybody. This is always an exciting day. This is our eighth annual day in Durham. It just amazes me. And you know, every year the participants, uh, the number of participants just grows and grows and grows, which I think is an amazing testament to the type of student that we're attracting here to the Fuqua School of Business. And I'm always thrilled to have this. Before we even get going, though, I do need to point out that the Net Impact Club has just an amazing job over the summer putting this day together. So for the officers of the Net Impact Club and everyone who's been involved in doing this, we owe you our thanks. You know, there really is a rich tradition here at the Fuqua School of Business of civic engagement. And when we talk about leaders of consequence, I think one way that our students have traditionally expressed that is through their engagement in the community. And I want to thank you guys, too, because this year, uh, this past week, those of you who are first years, um, the, the number of you, actually 258 of you, went out on site to Habitat for Humanity to work on the, first, the sixth uh, house that Fuqua built and 100 and uh, 90 or so of you guys work with about eight local social enterprises and other organizations on springboard sessions to address some of their most critical business challenges. So I think all of you for spending that time uh, owe yourselves a big round of applause as well. I don't know if you saw it, but yesterday in the Durham Herald Sun, there was actually a great article on those of you out at Habitat with a nice photo. And actually, on the very front page of the Herald Sun, there was under the fold a little photo and a blurb. And then the actual article was on the front page of the, um, the, the local, the metro uh, section. And I think the, the headline went something like, uh, Duke MBA's nail first assignment. So. <laughs> So you're already, um, you're already creating uh, goodwill. And I will tell you, the, the, the community of Durham uh, does feel a special affinity for, for Duke MBAs, for the, the ways that you contribute, whether it's long-standing programs such as MBA games raising well over $2 million for the Special Olympics of North Carolina, or, or those of you who may put uh, time in every month to serving with a board of directors of a local organization. We usually have about 70 students participating in Fuquan Board, or launching programs such as STEP, the Students Teaching Entrepreneurship Program, Junior Achievement, and many others, uh, the, the house that Fuqua built. These are the various ways that uh, students get involved. And I think that's the type of student we're looking to attract here. And one way or another, we want you to find a way throughout your career to incorporate economic, social, and environmental impact. And you can express that in, in lots of ways. And so I'm particularly thrilled to introduce our speaker today because he has really shown uh, through his own you know, personal um, career and commitments how to incorporate that sort of triple bottom line into our career. So Kevin Trapani is the president and CEO of the Redwoods Group, which is a certified B Corporation. For those of you who aren't familiar with this whole movement around B Corporations, this is the idea to create a whole new form of for-profit corporation that kind of baked into the DNA is a commitment to social and environmental uh, you know, return on investment as well as your traditional economic return on investment. And actually, North Carolina leads the way in this. We are pretty close to actually having legislation passed at the state level to make this a formal you know, legal corporate form or the benefit corporation. But so the, the Redwoods Group is an outstanding local example of a B corporation. Uh, and the corporation is an insurance company that he founded to serve uh, the JCC, YMCA, camp communities has done amazing work. And I think one way of recognizing that that we can all be proud of is last week, Business Week, named Kevin as one of the 20, the America's 25 top most promising social entrepreneurs. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. 
Obviously, we're thrilled to have a, a Duke, uh, one of our own, on that list. Uh, before founding Redwoods, Kevin held a, a ver variety of leadership positions in the insurance industry at several known companies until in the late 90s when he had a chance to you know, merge his career and passion. I also asked to comment from my own personal experience that Kevin uh, and his wife Jennifer are among the most dedicated, hardworking, visionary, and philanthropic leaders of our community. On, on any number of boards across our community, you'll find one of them, uh, the power couple serving and contributing in, in many ways. I've served uh, on boards in one way or another with, with them uh, throughout the years, and they regularly devote their time, commitment, energy, and passion. Just an example, Kevin's on the boards of Bull City Ford, which is a, a social innovation incubator downtown to create, scale, and uh, serve the number of um, social enterprises emerging in our community. SJF Institute, which creates and accelerates social entrepreneurs to create jobs and preserve the environment. Um, the Community Advisory Board of North Carolina Public Radio, which he chairs, and most close to, to my heart, of course, is Kevin's on our board of the Advisory Council of, of CASE. And throughout this, Kevin is uh, unflinching in his willingness to support and contribute. One of the ways that he does that, and the reason why he's here today, is he's just an outstanding and passionate speaker. Uh, obviously, we greatly appreciate Kevin's support. I'll give you one quick anecdote. This, this past February, CASE held the first International Conference on Social Entrepreneurship Education. We had more than 70 universities here from around the world. We had faculty, we had administrators, um, staff. And the way we kicked off the session was with a TEDx conference. Now, if you're familiar with TEDx, it's kind of an event of a variety of speakers coming up in very short 16-minute talks that are very, you know, web-streamable, uh, uh, interactive sorts of talks that are they're pretty exciting. We had Kevin up there on board, and we had Janine was packed. We had 400 people here. We had more people in the overflow. We had 300 people watching online. And we had social entrepreneurs and educators from around the country. One was an Ashoka fellow who had just come from uh, Tahrir Square in Egypt, where a couple weeks before uh, she was out there protesting. We had just an amazing lineup. But I'll tell you, one person that we got the most consistent kind of enthusiastic feedback about saying, wow, where did you get that guy, was Kevin. And so I can't think of anyone better to have uh, challenge you to think about how you use your business skills for social environmental impact as a uh, provocative and challenging speaker as Kevin. So please join me in welcoming Kevin Tepani. Thank you very much, Matt. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that I, there is no chance that I can now meet your expectations. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here in so many ways. Thank you for being here on a Saturday morning. Thank you for being here at Duke and Fuqua. Thank you for being in Durham. I want to be one of the parade of people who will, by the end of the next month, I guess, or so, have uh, welcomed you to Durham and the American South. Uh, many of you are not from here. Uh, we hope all of you will fall in love with here and stay here. That, okay, I guess that's not really possible. But, uh, but we, uh, those of us who are here chose to be here for all kinds of reasons. And I'm just thrilled that you're going to get an introduction to Durham today uh, in a way that will be truly unique and I hope transformational in many ways. Because in many ways, what's happening here in Durham is possible anywhere. And so I, I just want to talk quickly about kind of where you are, give you a little bit of a sense of place. I want to talk about uh, uh, some of the things in this place um, that are important for you all and all of us to understand. I want to talk about the role of business in this place, your role uniquely as uh, strong, smart, moral, engaged citizens of the world. I want to talk about what's possible. So, if you will bear with me for a moment, 
I'd like you to watch and listen um, as my friend Buddy Jewell welcomes you to the south. Now, I'd like you to listen to the words and watch the images and pay attention for a few moments. Thank you. Misty sunrise in my hometown, rolls of cotton about me high. Mrs. Baker down the dirt road, still got clothes out on the line. Irwin Nichols there with Judge Lee, playing checkers at the gym. When I dream about the Southland, this is where it all begins. From Catching catfish on the river, chasing fireflies by the creek. Kissing Gary Williams' sister on the porch homecoming week. With rusty cars and weeping willows, keeping watch out in the yard. Just a snapshot of down home Dixie, could be anywhere you are in James Baldwin was a great author and civil rights activist in the 60s and 70s in the South. What he says is true. Importantly, the South has no franchise on being beautiful but also troubled. A month ago, I was in a great, beautiful, wonderful European capital with my wife. And as we got on the plane to come home, we said how much we love London. And a week later, dislocated youth were bombing and killing and burning and looting. David Cameron blamed it on bad parenting. I didn't hear him blame Rupert Murdoch on bad parenting. We are dislocating a whole generation of people and sometimes the power structures turn upside down like they did in the Arab Spring, a story that's still unfolding. Yet not far from there, in the Horn of Africa in the last 90 days, 25,000 children died. 14 million lives are at risk. 
closer to home, we have a system of social injustice that's pervasive and is disenfranchising whole communities by race and by ethnicity. We know that it will be impossible to succeed as an individual in this world pretty soon if you don't have college or at least some college. Yet in this country, the black and Hispanic communities have almost no chance to succeed. Is that because they are just not as smart as we are? Is that because they just don't deserve the same opportunity that we do? I don't believe so. I want you to join me on a recent visit to a place that was confounding to me. And I want to talk about this global issue of the gap between the rich and the rest. The opportunity gap, if you will. Um, that where it is just completely clear on every level. So, so bear with me for just a moment. I was in a desperate place. I was in a place with an absolutely repressive regime by any measure. A, a place where the system of social injustice was so pervasive and so long established that it's almost impossible to understand how it could be overcome. I was in the US. I was in Biloxi, Mississippi, not in a developing nation. I was in this country on the Gulf Coast. Now I know your reaction may be, as recently has been written many, many times, that poverty here in the US doesn't look like poverty in other places. But let me just tell you that this place was devastating to experience. The nonprofits who spoke up on behalf of funding inequities, spoke up on behalf of social justice, literally were defunded by the government and philanthropic structures in the area. Folks who spoke out on their uh, inadequate access to developmental childcare or adequate schools and educational systems literally lost childcare and other social support subsidies. In the casinos, a brutal work environment by almost any measure, folks who tried to unionize or tried to stand up for what's right lost their jobs. That's an environment that's not supposed to happen here in America. It shouldn't happen anywhere, but certainly not here on our shores. It's interesting what's evolved here in the US and frankly in many other places around the world. You know, the great theories of governance, liberty, egalite, fraternity, the great society, all the wonderful doctrines around which strong community building government systems have been built, uh, have been translated today across this globe into a simpler kind of a, an idea. Instead of liberty, equality, brotherhood, we have, we're business friendly. Today, governments all across the world have ceded the responsibility to lead to business. I'm sorry, in this world, it's to job creators, right? To job creators. Because business and markets will take care of everything. I don't believe that's what's happening. And I want to talk a little bit about today about what is happening. And then I want to talk about what's possible. Let's stay in Biloxi for just a short period of time. I don't know if you know what happened in Biloxi, but during Hurricane Katrina, 
while New Orleans was flooding, a terrible situation where the water rose slowly for a long time, stayed there, and then went down. What happened in Biloxi was 7,000 homes were destroyed in about an hour. Literally, a tidal wave swept across the peninsula and then swept back across, taking 7,000 homes. Today, as I stand here, fewer than 1,000 of those homes have been rebuilt. Fewer than 1,000. Yet, within nine months, nine casinos had been reopened. And in fact, those casinos are now expanding dramatically. As a matter of fact, the coastline of Biloxi, about maybe 20% of which had been dedicated to the casinos, is now 100% dedicated to the casinos. So all of the revenue-producing property that could be made available to other forms have given way to a business monoculture. All casinos, all the time. That's the bet that Biloxi made. God forbid you walk two blocks away from the casinos because what you walk into is abject poverty and desperation. We have taught our businesses in this generation to privatize profits and socialize costs. So those casinos are making lots and lots and lots and lots of money. Yet about 80% of their employees don't have adequate access to health care. Their access to health care is provided by you and me through our system of taxation and redistribution. When you walk into Walmart, what percent of their employees have health benefits paid for by Walmart? About a third. How many Walmart employees are receiving Medicaid, Section 8 housing, aid to families with dependent children? Yet what does Walmart and what do many corporations announce every quarter but significant billion dollar earnings. We are privatizing profits and redistributing those profits to the wealthy while socializing the costs that are incurred by their employees who are just simply trying to live a life and fulfill their obligations to their families. The way we resolved things after Katrina in Biloxi was almost unimaginable. One of those things you couldn't really make up. FEMA said let's put everybody in trailers and so they went out to the trailer manufacturers and said, give us lots and lots and lots of trailers. And they said, sure, we got lots of them. By the way, because you can't sell them to anybody because the drywall inside is soaked in formaldehyde and creates an environment, a living environment, that is, uh, to, at the least, inhospitable. And so we've got kids going to hospitals with their noses bleeding, people with respiratory infections that may never be overcome. As if that's not bad enough, the very few organizations, Texas Baptist Men, Habitat for Humanity, Hope Community Development Agency, that got engaged and started building some of those thousand houses, what did they use? Chinese drywall soaked in formaldehyde that happened to get through our regulators here and created the same environment in the very houses that created an opportunity for hope for those people. Hard to imagine, but on top of Katrina, our regulators decided to create an environment where in the Gulf we could end up with the BP oil spill. Now, I'm not making this up, but the regulators who were overseeing BP and the other oil companies around all of the drilling in the Gulf, literally many of them were sleeping with the business people. There was corruption and graft and sex and politics and everything else you can imagine. And as a result, we end up wiping out what was left of Biloxi's economy besides the casinos because the fishing industry went away. Why do we behave this way? Why does this happen? I believe 
that at every place that we have the opportunity, virtually every place that we have the opportunity, we fail to teach values. Now, I don't want you to say, no, oh my goodness, this is a values talk. This is not red versus blue. This is not the Christian right. I'm talking about the values that we all share. Rush Kidder, who used to be the editor of the Christian Science Monitor, wrote a great book about four years ago called Moral Courage. He went to every continent, 177 countries, and asked them what they valued across cultures and faith communities, across geography and economics. He asked them what they value. And he came away with five universally shared values, five. Now, in every country, they may be ordered or weighted or recognized a little differently, but they are the same five values. Interestingly, I should tell you, I am a YMCA kid. I grew up in the YMCA. And the YMCA stands for four of these five values, but I think they're pretty interested in the fifth one, too. So I found this interesting in Rush Kidder's book. Here are the five values. Caring, honesty, respect, responsibility, and fairness. Caring, honesty, respect, responsibility, and fairness. Folks, those are the values that unite, not divide. Those are the values that build community. Those are the values that lift people and that call us to behave in a certain way. If I had a show of hands right here and I said, do you believe in caring, honesty, respect, responsibility, and fairness, I believe we'd get 100% support, that we all support and agree to those values. The question is, do we live in a world that, that requires us, that calls us, that demands, that encourages us at every moment to behave in ways that are consistent with those values? Do our businesses behave in ways that are consistent with our universally held collective shared values? Where should we learn these values? In church? In the temple? Should we learn these at the Y? Should we learn them in school? Where should we learn these values? Well, what I would say is we should learn them everywhere. We should learn them in our families and on the street and from our peers. We should learn them everywhere, but just for the purpose of today's conversation, here's one place that I think we should learn these values. Right here. What? Right here. I don't believe ethics is a bolt-on course. I don't believe you learn how to manipulate uh, uh, financial reports, and then you go talk about how to behave. I want to tell you a quick story about Cummins Engine. Raise your hand if you know anything about Cummins Diesel Engines, a wonderful Indiana company. Terrific. Okay, a few people do. This is a company with ethics at its core, actually. It was founded that way. Interestingly, the founder wasn't named Cummins. The founder's chauffeur was named Cummins, and he figured out how to get diesel engines put into trucks, which was a pretty cool thing. And so the founder named the company after him and gave him a significant share of the ownership. Early 1980s, Cummins was in a difficult situation. They're in an Indiana city, small town in Indiana. They have had to downsize a fair number of times. Uh, it is a recession, the early 80s here in the United States. Uh, unemployment is very high, particularly local unemployment. The marketing department has been really working hard to get a very large order. And they do. They get this enormous order for 12, big, big 12-cylinder diesel engines. And it comes kind of from an aggregator, from a distributor, not from the end customer. And so they spend a lot of time vending where, uh, vetting where did this order come from. Well, ultimately, they find out it came from Chile. Okay, no problem with that. We sell internationally. Chile is fine. Except there's really only two things you can use that size of an engine for in Chile. One is for mining, 
And let me tell you, in the midst of a global recession, nobody's investing in mining equipment at the moment. The other thing is you can use it to put in tanks. And Pinochet is in the middle of putting down an insurrection in, in Chile. Rush Kidder in Moral Courage says the issue is not choosing between right and wrong. We're pretty good at that. The issue is choosing between right and the hard right. One right would have been to fill the order and employ 300 people in this small town in Indiana. Another right might have been to say, I will not make weapons that will destroy human dignity. I won't tell you what they did. That's up to you to find out during your next couple of years here at Fuqua. That ethical conversation is essential and important to have. So I want to talk today about what's possible because at the end of the day, no business can succeed in any sustainable way in a community that's failing. It can't. So if there is not a philanthropic reason or a human reason to serve community, there is sure as hell a financial one. Because all those people out there that are failing are our consumers. And lifting them inures to the benefit of the business. I believe that business can and must be a powerful force for positive social change. Lord knows we have seen business be a powerful force for negative social change. I don't think it's just possible. I think it's essential, and I think it's already happening. There was an article recently in the Harvard Business Review, you know that magazine put out by the second best business school in the country? <laughs> that was shameless. If I wasn't a dookie, you'd think I was just trying to curry favor with the audience. I don't know how many of you read it, but it was called Creating Shared Value, written by Professors Porter and Kramer. And they said not all profits are created equal. The time has come to recognize that profits with a social benefit are better. We are rejecting the argument of false equality. A predatory company is bad for society. A company that can make profit that makes them sustainable, but that lifts community is better. Matt talked about the For Benefit Corporation, a corporation that says at its very core that it recognizes the interests of a, a broad range of stakeholders including the community and customers and the environment, as well as the owners, is better for community and therefore ought to deserve to win competitive bidding, ought to deserve to win in the marketplace, as long as its products are good and it is financially sustainable. Nobody gets a pass on those kinds of things. For benefit corporations have to be fundamentally better. We don't exist just to make a profit, but we do have to make a profit. Otherwise, we don't get to serve another day. I believe talking about business in this way is essential. Gary Hamill says, why are words like love, devotion, honor so seldom heard within the halls of corporatedom? Why are the ideals that matter most to human beings the ones that are most notably absent in the managerial discourse? We're talking about leading businesses in the way that's consistent with our own values, in a way that calls us to be our highest selves, as opposed to being our most base selves. To pursue what's good for mankind, not just what's good for stakeholders. We are now talking about shareholder value, but we need to be talking about shared value. No longer will we celebrate just what's good for the shareholder. Now, by the way, I'm not asking you to listen just to a rogue CEO out at the 
lunatic fringe of social enterprise. Just yesterday I saw a significant report by um, folks at the Boston Consulting Group. Anybody work for BCG before they got here? By the way, the chances of there not being a hand going up in this crowd is really small. So, Okay, so BCG, terrific consulting company, doing important work. They wrote a report called Accelerating Out of the Great Recession. Pretty important stuff, right? BCG, pretty traditional, right in the middle of the consulting world. So BCG's, BCG says this, the authors expect the pendulum to swing from favoring shareholders to favoring stakeholders. The culture of a company will assume new importance as organizations act to preserve their skill base and to be seen as acting responsibly in the aftermath of the Great Recession. Now the acting responsibly piece everybody gets. We can see why this might be developing. Here's the piece that's subtle. Remember I said they seek to preserve their skill base. The culture of the company being responsible is a way of preserving the skill base. What do you think that means? What that means is companies are beginning to understand that if they don't act responsibly, lift the community of which they're a part, that you will not go to work for them. Or you won't stay there. Because you're increasingly going to have options to work for companies that ask you to bring not only your head but your heart. They want you to be your best self and lift them to being their best collective selves. That's where we're going. And what's possible is amazing. Dow is now making solar shingles. Not big film platforms that stick out from the roof, but literally shingles thin enough and of the size that they replace the asphalt shingles on homes. They literally can replace that roof. And in 10 years, they will pay for themselves. And you say, 10 years, that's a long time. No, it's not. Not for a roof, which probably lasts 20 to 25. That's what's possible. Most people think that this will be a $5 million business, if I'm sorry, $5 billion business in no time. Because why wouldn't it be? So we can build a great business that might be one of the most significant contributors to creating an alternative source of energy. In Mexico, there's a, a grown-up microfinance organization called Comportamos. Comportamos is interesting. It started as a, um, a nonprofit that was helping in local communities provide food and water and clothing to the disenfranchised. And then the founder decided that those people needed access to capital. So he cobbled together some money and began making loans to people. And he realized that those loans would allow people to start small businesses that gave them the opportunity to earn their own uh, economic opportunity. And so he created a lending model that identified groups in various different regions that were too, too far away from the traditional metropolitan areas for traditional banking services. A third of Mexicans are unbanked. In Mexico, when you're in a, a place where you can save, more often than not, it means you buy another goat. That's literally what that means. And then when you need the money, you sell the goat. Well, that's not terribly effective. That's not a great way to save. So Comportamos created access to capital for people. Today, they have 2 million customers, mostly women, all commercial loans. They became a for-profit organization in 2006. Now, Comportamos is not perfect. They charge too much interest on their loans. But they provided access to capital at rates that were far below what anybody could get anyplace else. Now, I've just given you examples of two for-profits. Yesterday and the day before, you all visited with folks from you know, River Association, uh, I think from the Latino Community Credit Union, um, from El Centro Hispano, uh, from Kids Notes. Those are nonprofit organizations. And at the end of the day, what's wonderful is you don't have to choose between doing business and doing good anymore. You can choose both. 
you can choose to run a vibrant, not-for-profit organization, be paid well, and do incredible good in the world. You don't now have to choose for-profit or not-for-profit, meaning evil versus good. Because some of the best not-for-profit organizations I know, and my business serves only not-for-profit organizations, uh, are amazingly disciplined, amazingly rigorous, and for their leaders, amazingly financially rewarding. They're not in conflict. And the best for-profit businesses I know are high mission, fundamentally focused on lifting community. This is a false choice, doing business or doing good, doing, doing well or doing good, because we can do both. And we have to find ways to do both. I'll tell you a little bit of our story just very quickly. I graduated from Duke. I went to work in the insurance business, a career goal for most of you I know. <coughs> I, <recru> <coughs> me, I was recruited at a time when uh, if you were an engineer, you'd get any job you wanted, but a liberal arts guy it was kind of tough. And I interviewed with a guy at the Chubb Group of insurance companies who said, you know, if you're as smart as you say you are, come to work for me and you'll be a regional manager in two years. I thought, that's pretty cool. By the way, I had no idea what a regional manager was. Uh, but it worked out. And so I had a whole bunch of different jobs. And uh, when I was 24, I was the national director of marketing for the Chubb Group of Insurance Companies. So I was very fortunate to have wonderful experiences and work with a lot of smart people that gave me a great chance to do wonderful things. I had one performance appraisal when I was at Chubb. It was about three or so, four years in, probably. No, actually a little more than that, about five years in. I went and visited with my national manager and uh, had to wait for a while. Uh, we were talking, he said, we're, we're waiting because I'm waiting for Henry Harder to come in. Henry was at the time the chairman of the Chubb Corporation. That was an unusual thing to happen when you're having your first performance appraisal. And uh, Henry came in and he said, uh, Kevin, how you doing? So I said, fine, Henry, how are you? He said, so here's your performance appraisal. I'm gonna do it instead of Charles. I said, okay, that sounds fine to me. He said, if you keep your nose clean, you can be president of Chubb. I said, thank you. He said, thank you very much. That's the end of the performance appraisal. You guys don't know me very well. Matt knows me pretty well. The chances of me keeping my nose clean for a, a whole career were pretty slim. So um, I thought, you know, perhaps there was something else for me. Chubb was a great company, a great place to be. I was blessed to have an opportunity there. I learned, learned great things. Um, but I left a little bit after that time to start a health maintenance organization in New Jersey at the time when health maintenance organizations were just starting. I worked uh, probably 16 hours a day, seven days a week for the next two years. We started an organization, went from zero to 90,000 members in no time, became the first statewide HMO uh, in New Jersey, uh, both facility model and an IPA individual practice model. And at the end of the two years, I lost my marriage and had to walk away from my wife and my child. <clears throat> it wasn't worth it. I learned a lot. But part of the lesson I learned is that it's essential to fulfill all your obligations to all your stakeholders. I wish I had learned that lesson earlier. I know it now. It's not all perfect, but those kinds of experiences led me through a career in the insurance industry where I recognize that you can do good from wherever you stand. You don't have to be an entrepreneur to do good. I ran about half the commercial insurance business at Great American Insurance Company, and we insured virtually all the schools in the state of Oregon. Every September or October, a school burned down. What are, the school, what are the schools made of in Oregon, do you think? Wood, right, <laughs> they're wood. Doesn't take much to burn them down. And in each case, the school burned down because a disaffected nine to 14 year old group of boys 
went into the school to start screwing around and they started a fire someplace in a trash can, often in the principal's office. And as you can imagine, it didn't take much to get it out of, out of control. So this is not an insurance story, let me tell you why. It seemed really easy to us because people would break in to do the damage they were going to do. It seemed pretty easy to us that all we really had to do was to put an intrusion and smoke, detect smoke detection system in every school in Oregon. We did, cost us $500,000. By the way, it was costing us $8 million a year to rebuild the school. So a $500,000 investment, and then when somebody broke in, they, we would know. And we'd be able to respond before the school burned down, right? Business, pretty clear kind of a business application of analytics. All right, so the end of September of that next year, all the schools have alarms. Kids break into a, a school. They break into a woodworking shop, and they start a fire. The door was not a fire-rated door, and the fire started. Okay, so because they broke in, it tripped an alarm. The police and the fire department came. They apprehended the kids, I think dealt with them roughly. And they put the fire out. Success story. Let me tell you the rest of how this works. The school was built like a lot of schools are, in the shape of a cross. The woodworking shop was over here. That's the source of the fuel for the fire, for those of us that want to think about the engineering side of things. You go down this hallway. And at the end of the hallway is an enormous gym that's basically like a Quonset hut. That would be the source for what for the fire when it used up all of its oxygen, right? So it would burn through the door, and then it would seek the oxygen. Anybody know how the fire would seek the oxygen? Fireball would go roaring down the hallway and explode into the gym. Well, it was about 11.30 at night. No big deal, it's a gym, except when you come to understand that there were 150 brownies, little Girl Scouts, on a sleepover in the gym that night. We put the fire out and saved 150 lives. You can do good from wherever you stand if you're properly motivated. Unfortunately, I'm a pain in the ass. And so I wasn't, Matt is laughing harder than he should be. <laughs> uh, I wasn't perfect in the corporate world. And so between 1992 and 1996, I got fired three times for pushing too hard. I know that comes as a huge surprise. I used to think that getting fired was the worst thing that could happen to you. By the way, it's not a pleasant thing to have happen to you. But I promise you it's not the worst thing that can have happen to you. Because after the third time I got fired, a lot of people would have figured this out after the first time. But after the third time, I thought, I think we can build a company that's dedicated to doing good. And we decided to build the Redwoods Group. We decided that there were too many kids drowning and being sexually abused in this country. And that we could build a company that would stop it from happening, literally stop it from happening. And that we, the way we chose to do it was from the platform of insurance, because we would have the data and intimate relationships with our customers. And so we started our company by saying, we are here to serve others. Now, interestingly, when you take a look at that slide, just under serve others, it basically says make a profit. For us and for all B corporations, making a profit is important, but it's not adequate. Making a profit is a metric of sustainability and nothing more. We have to make enough money to fulfill our obligations to all of our stakeholders, to hedge against volatility, to create reserves against volatility, and then we give the rest away. That's how it works. During the time we've been working, we by the way, insure a little more than half of all the YMCAs in the country. Uh, a very good percentage of Jewish community centers and a growing percentage of nonprofit resident camps. 
10 years ago, should understand 3,500 people die by drowning in the United States every year. 1,500 of them are children. And between a third and a half of those children who die, die in a pool with a lifeguard on the deck. Counterintuitive, but it's tough to watch a pool and be vigilant when it's 90 degrees and 90% humidity and you're on duty for a long time. So 10 years ago, 15 people a year were dying in YMCA pools by drowning. 2008, 2009, 2010, the number was zero. Okay. Now our big, hairy, audacious goal, to quote from Jim Collins, is not to stop people from drowning in YMCA pools, it's to stop people from drowning in pools that have lifeguards, so we're not done, we're not close. We've driven down the incidence of child sexual abuse by 40%. We have way more to do and we know how to stop it from happening. So that's what happens in our company. That's why we started our company. People who work for the Redwoods Group get to go to work every day understanding if we do, if we do our job well, someone won't die. That tends to focus the mind. Very few people sprint into our office thinking if I do my job well, I can make Kevin wealthier. That's not a part of the conversation. We've gotten some recognition. By the way, I hadn't heard the Business Week thing, so <laughs> that was an interesting way to learn that. I'll have to go get a copy. Um, but a lot of people have thought well of us, which is a great blessing. But it's interesting because we're not alone. This concept of social entrepreneurship um, is becoming better understood. In 1996, when I went to bankers and said, um, we're going to start a company, but we're not going to start the company to make money, people said, what are you, crazy? At the same time, Greg Dees was basically inventing the concept of social entrepreneurship. And those of you that will have the opportunity to work with Greg and Paul Bloom and Kathy Clark and Matt Nash and the guys at Case, please take time, uh, pay attention, listen. This is a treasure trove of, of what's going on in the SE world in this country. But the Skoll uh, Center has a very good grip on it. And the only thing I would really point out there is that these are folks that are challenging conventional structures. Challenging conventional structures. Now, interestingly, um, there are companies that you have heard of, but I could have filled up that slide with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies, 400 B corporations, for instance. But you know Patagonia and Timberland, Burt's Bees, seventh generation. These are folks doing great work <clears throat> on pretty mundane platforms. Shoes, you know, dish detergent. If you can invent and be socially beneficial making detergent, you can probably do it in any business you would think about. The social responsibility movement is getting bigger and better. So it starts with running a good business. That's important. Give a little bit back. Be a beacon to others. But you can also change the industry. In the insurance industry, people are calling Redwoods all the time saying, how are you doing this? How are you lowering losses? How do you engage with your customers in this way? You can transform an industry, clearly. And that's what's beginning to happen. At Redwoods, in addition to kind of what we do in the insurance world, uh, we give 4,000 hours a year in service here locally. So every one of our employees is required to serve 40 hours a year. Some of them will take a week and go build trails in the Appalachian Trail. Some went to Honduras to build houses uh, earlier in the spring. Others will simply read to a child in school an hour a week. It's, we don't tell them what their passion should be. We simply say, you're going to get out into the community. It used to be we required people to do it. And folks would walk around in the fourth quarter saying, how am I getting my hours? And then they got engaged and enlightened and involved. And now 40 hours is a limit because we can't really afford them to do more. But they said, I want to do more. And so now they do more on weekends. And when they serve in the community, when they serve for a non-for-profit organization, however many hours they serve for that nonprofit, we give the nonprofit $10 an hour. So we pay our people 
to work on weekends in the nonprofit. You know, we have a lot of capital. We don't have that much financial capital, though we gave about $750,000 away last year. But we have a ton of social capital and knowledge capital and facilities capital. And every business in the world has all those things. When you go to work for the company you're working for, there'll be 1,500 other people sitting in your office, or 500 or 15, and every one of you can give of yourselves. Every one of you, without anybody writing a check. And beginning those kinds of opportunities is a way to engage people and help them to learn and become better citizens. I think there are four habits of socially responsible organizations. And they are very, very clear. So this is what's possible for businesses. One, to have a socially beneficial mission. If the mission is to enrich the shareholder, that's not socially responsible. If the mission is to enrich the shareholder while enriching your community, that is. Two, to create an environment of sustained profitability. I'm not against profits. Profits enable service. We have to make sure that we balance revenues and expenses and do so in a responsible and robust and sustainable way. Otherwise, we will not be here to serve tomorrow. Profits are not a bad word. Profits are an enabling word. Third, conservative financial practices. And by the way, we haven't been practicing those, at least in this country, in an awfully long time. Here's one thing we know when times are good. Times will be bad. Economies are volatile. Markets are volatile. When times are good, do what you will eventually try to teach your children to do. Postpone gratification. My kids are 10. They get an allowance of $10 each week. And by the way, those are my twins. I have a 24-year-old, too, who eventually will watch this tape. And if I don't tell you that she is my pride and joy and my great inspiration, she will be unhappy. <laughs> she grew up in the YMCA world, understands social enterprise better than I do, is a teacher in the Bronx in a tough neighborhood entering her fourth year of teaching, and is a master's candidate at Columbia University. By the way, she's perfect. <laughs> but my 10-year-olds, who are also perfect, get $10 of allowance every week. I have the $10 in my hand. For them to get the $10, they have to say to me, I say, what are you going to do with the money? They say, I'm going to save some. I'm going to spend some. I'm going to give the rest away. They say that because I had to say that to my dad from the time that I was about 6 to the time that I was about 15 or 17. Save some, spend some, give the rest away. What we're trying to teach our kids is what we ought to be teaching our leaders. Postpone gratification. You have obligations to others. Conservative financial practices. And finally, progressive employment practices. Maslow taught us that if our most basic needs aren't being fulfilled, we can't think communally. Not that we won't. We can't. And believe me, no matter what kind of business you're running, if you want to lift your community, your people have to think communally. But if they don't have job security, because the last time we missed an earnings target by a penny, we laid off 1,500 people, then they can't think communally. If the last time we were just short of our sales goal, we cut back health benefits, those people can't think communally. If they can't send their kid to the dock, retire with dignity, afford adequate housing, they can't think communally. In this country, our responsibility as business leaders is to take care of our people. We are here to remove their barriers to fulfilling their obligations to all of their stakeholders. 
At the Redwoods Group, one of the things that we do is if you're working for us, your kid's college education is my responsibility. So we pay the first $6,500 a year of their tuition, which doesn't get you too far at Duke, but it'll allow you to get an education at the community college down the street. <clears throat> That's the University of North Carolina. <laughs> okay, forget the social enterprise stuff. You're Dukies, okay? Let's at least begin to represent. Let the record show that that was the largest applause line of this presentation. <laughs> okay, we're responsible for taking care of our people so that they can serve. This is tough stuff. This is tough stuff. Leading this way will occasionally make you the least popular person in the room. Bobby Kennedy, in, 19, in the early 1960s, was in South Africa, and he was talking to the group who was their Peace Corps. Before they went off into the world, he said, before he said this, he said, a few men are willing to brave the disapproval of their fellows, the censure of society. Moral courage is a rarer commodity than bravery in battle or great intelligence, yet it is the one essential vital quality of those who seek to change a world which yields most painfully to change. We spent some time today talking about how the world is broken and needs to be healed. We spent some time talking about the contribution of businesses to this situation, both good and potentially bad. So now the question is, what are we each uniquely called to do? The good Lord put us in this place. The good Lord did. It's not just by our own efforts. Bill Gates, a relatively wealthy and successful guy, calls this chance that he was born into prosperity instead of desperation, the ovarian lottery. Somebody I relate to a little bit better is Lou Pinella, a baseball coach and a character. Lou Pinella said, the people I hate most in the world are people who were born on third base and are convinced they got there by hitting a triple. We have been delivered to this place to have this great treasure, to have these wonderful resources, not because only of our own effort, but because of fate but because perhaps if your faith allows you to believe that way because of divine intervention, but you're here not only because of what you earned. You're here to get an MBA. I get that. I understand that. What I'd like to see you walk out of here with is an MMC, a Master's in Moral Courage. I would like to see you to learn not how to run a business, but how to lead and heal and rescue a community. You know, I don't believe all the folks in Wall Street are bad people, but I will tell you that we have a system that significantly misstated, understated, misrepresented what our obligations were as individuals, as businesses, as a country. We behaved in a way that was not consistent with our most basic, most commonly held values because we went into a system that did not encourage that kind of behavior and we didn't change it. So the question is, will you leave here and be changed by your environment or will you change your environment? There's no group of people with greater potential than you to do good in the world. Unfortunately, we have across the world an ideology of self-interest among the wealthy. Many studies are telling us now that the least of us behave in the most communal ways, the most generous and most philanthropic ways, while the richest of us 
behave in the most protective ways, protecting our assets. I said assets. Everybody had to read Ayn Rand, right? Ayn Rand, wonderful, she's got everything. No need for big government. She said it's the morality of altruism that men have to reject. Are you kidding me? By the way, Ayn Rand died in a hospital bed, paid for by Medicare, accepting Social Security. Thank you. <laughs> Fine, that's a perspective, but it is not the perspective that made great societies. It is not the perspective that lifts people. It is the perspective of selfish people who believe only in doing what's right for themselves, who see rights as being individual as opposed to being collective. Our individual rights today are leaving generations behind. Today you'll be in Durham. A hundred years ago, Durham was the commercial capital of the South in many, many ways. That was built on tobacco, sorry. I don't believe we knew in 1870 that tobacco was going to be bad for you. Although when we did, we covered it up for 25 years. I couldn't make this presentation without making that comment. Durham became a, a vibrant commercial town for well over a hundred years. 1967, things were booming here. I lived here at this time, that time. My dad ran the Veterans Hospital here at just about that time. By 1980, it was all done, paved over. The big building along the left side, the long, low, big building along the left side is a tobacco warehouse. It was an unpoliced ring of prostitution and a heroin shooting gallery. It was devastating. Today, you'll be there. This is what it looks like now because a passionate, committed individual and a group of visionary leaders thought about what was possible. And today, Durham is a place where lots is possible. And lots of people are choosing to be here because we can get things done for the good of all. It's important to understand what's possible because we have no time. Dr. King in 1966 said we have tough challenges. Let us not be tranquilized by the narcotic of gradualism. It's time. It's time. You are here to learn to lead. You are here to learn to lift communities. You are here to learn to change the world. Thank you for giving me this time to chat with you. Thank you. We want to thank you for taking the time this Saturday to come and talk to the class of 2013 and the Fuqua community. And we oh. have a small uh, gift for you. Oh, great. Thank and, you. And uh, we have also made a donation to the YMCA in your name. Oh, thank you. How great is that? Thank you very much. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Produced by Duke University. Online at duke.edu.